Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. Hi, I'm Irene Watson. I'm the managing editor of Reader Views in Austin, Texas. And I'm Tyler Tischler with Superior Book Promotions in Marquette, Michigan, sitting in for Victor Volkman. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to episode number 147 in our series. Tonight's topic is writing historical romances, and our special guest will be Donna Winters. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Please send your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Tonight's guest, Donna Winters, and her husband, Fred, are the owners of Big Water Publishing. Since 1989, they have released 15 of Donna's historical romances for ages 12 and up under the Great Lakes Romances imprint. And I'll just add to that that um, I have known Donna personally for about three years now. Um, She's a member of the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association and very active in sharing information with all of our members. And I know she does lots of writer conferences and writer retreats and um, has a lot of information about writing historical romances. So I'm interested in hearing what she has to say tonight. Hi, Donna. In the introduction, Tyler had mentioned that you write historical romances for ages 12 and up. And I would just like to talk a little bit about that because a historical romance for a 12-year-old and a historical romance for a 50-year-old, I would think, would be different. And so I would like to kind of let's talk about historical romances for the younger ages, let's say the 12-year-olds. Sure. Um, Actually... (laughs) The 12-year-olds and many of the 50-year-olds that I write for are looking for the same thing, but that's because I'm talking about a 50-year-old woman who's looking for an innocent story as opposed to a sensuous story. Now, when we talk about what is the difference between a historical romance and a contemporary romance, or how would I write it for a 12-year-old and still satisfy the 50-year-old who's not looking for a really sexy description. So what we do in historical romances is be very, very careful in the way that we describe the interaction between the romantic uh, couple. What I do most of the time is I write in the Victorian era. In the Victorian era, public displays of affection are very, very limited and and really almost uh, not approved of. And So we don't have to worry about the physical side of the romance going very far while the couple's in public. And actually, the same thing holds true when the couple is in private. Uh, In the Victorian era, which is the one I'm most familiar with, the couple would normally be chaperoned. And another interesting aspect of it is that uh, just the idea of the physical... Uh, touching was it, it was just so frowned upon during the Victorian era that uh, even a kiss that would not not happen for a woman until she was engaged to be married. So, in writing for the historical setting, you really have to be very careful about how much of this affection is described in the story. When, especially because I am coming from the background of having written inspirational romances for the religious publishers, and they are quite conservative over what they will accept. 
I've carried that tradition on in my own business after uh, the originally the publishers that I wrote for dropped their romantic lines. This was back in the late 1980s. So when I went forward with it on my own, my husband and I went forward together to create the publishing and the romantic imprint, um, I continued to write according to those standards. So I hope that kind of explains uh, what I what I consider to be the difference in historical and contemporary. And uh, you just have to be watching the times and the customs of the era that you're writing about in history and follow what was acceptable in that time. So what was acceptable during that time, let's say the 1880s? Well, in the 1880s, the hand-holding would, or the woman would probably be wearing gloves. The touching of skin on skin was not common, in, particularly in public. And in private, that would have been considered quite, that, that would be a sensuous touch, a man's hand on a woman's hand. Um, I think that the most you would expect to see would be the gentleman would be in public offering his arm to escort his lady friend. And when it comes to anything beyond that, it would have to be um, very, very carefully done for the Victorian era. Okay. I guess I'm just kind of having, uh, I'm trying to picture, this is being called romance, historical romance. And so... How do we get the romance into the book? <laughs> you got it. That's my question. <laughs> yeah, good question, and I can answer that. Good. <laughs> it, it, it is much more portrayed by the feelings that these individuals have toward each other, the attraction that they have toward each other, which is not necessarily expressed in a physical touching. It is expressed Inwardly, it will more come out in the character's viewpoint of what they are thinking and feeling. What about that other person attracts them? So instead of it being a display of affection, uh, it, it's, the reader gets it from the character's thoughts, what it is about that other person that they are attracted to. And, and Donna, I know I've read um, I've read a few of your books, and one thing that strikes me about them um, is, and they're they're told from the women's uh, viewpoint more than the male viewpoint, third person, but you're in the the female character's thoughts. Um, they remind me a lot of Jane Austen, where the where the woman is often kind of wondering, well, does he like me or does he not like me? Is he going to propose to me or is he not going to propose? And and that kind of builds up a whole lot of um. There's not a whole lot of plot and and story, but it builds up a lot of conflict and tension that I think is what keeps the reader the reader going. Would you would you say that's true? Well, I, I hope so. I, I certainly hope I build the tension enough to build to have them turning the pages. And another thing that I tend to do, and this is not true of all writers of of this particular genre, and I'm speaking of the historical romance that's written for a more inspirational audience, is um, I tend to bring in conflict into the story from outside sources. 
rather than having the couple be at odds with each other, but they sometimes are. I don't eliminate that totally. They sometimes are, just depending on, on what, what story I'm spinning at the time. But I bring in a lot of conflict from outside, and that is how I um, move the story forward. That's how I create the pacing. But um, many writers are very, very good at, at, at the conflict being exactly between the romantic couple. And that, of course, if you can make that work, um, that, that makes the pages turn, too. Now, you, you can't, um, in, in your book, since they are Victorian, the, the woman isn't likely to to go up to the man and say, you know, I like you, I want to go out with you, um, which which adds to a lot of the tension. But um, what uh, can I ask, is, is there... Is there a reason why you prefer to write historical romances, specifically in the Victorian period? Do you, do you find that more challenging than if you would be writing contemporary romances? Well, it is more challenging, and I think that what happened, uh, it, the reason that I did a lot of them is because I had an audience for it. At the time uh, that I had it in that direction, contemporary romances were out of favor. Uh, now, times have changed. Too bad for me. I haven't changed with them, so I kept, just kept writing the Victorian era, and um, you know my readers have been appreciative. So I, whether I, I've I've since learned that there was a period of time when historicals were out of favor. I wrote right through that period, never even knew it existed until just recently. I've heard writers refer to it that there was a time when historicals were out of favor, but now they're back. That's what I've been told. So. Um, it was habit. I, I thought this is what they want, so I'll just I just kept going with it. Uh, well, uh, most of the historical romances that I'm familiar with, like I mentioned Jane Austen, and she has had a bunch of imitators in recent years. Um, the sort of the Regency romance time period, and they're all set in England and so on. Um, but yours are mostly set around, they're, well, they're all, I believe, set around the Great Lakes area. And so I'm just wondering, um, you know, how do you, how do you like a lot of, you, you pick a certain, a specific place on the Great Lakes. I'm, I'm wondering how you decide where to set the story and how that influences your decisions about the romance that's going to happen. You know, excellent question. I have to say that the settings that I chose were a combination of, over the years, uh, because I've been doing this for such a long time, there are 15 titles already complete, is the setting was either my choice, something that interested me in particular, or it was one that readers told me they were interested in and they wanted to read about. Um, I can tell you that... uh, Oh, the first setting that I chose in the Great Lakes Romances series, Mackinac Island, was one that I knew would please the widest uh, number of readers because Mackinac Island is the location in Michigan that draws the highest number of tourists. So I knew that would have a good uh, market. That was my first choice. It, later on, uh, readers told me they wanted to read about lighthouses. It was a huge uh, upsurge in interest in lighthouses in the 1990s. So then I began researching how can I do settings with lighthouses, and I chose to do South Manitou, North Manitou, and uh, the Grand Traverse Bay light that's just north of Northport. Um, 
So uh, I don't know. Does that now what? Uh, so does that answer how I chose to do those settings? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they 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 have a interest to readers and plus a historical historical significance in many cases. Right. Donna, you know, you're talking about historicals, and we are talking in the Victorian because that and that's the area that you uh, write about. But I'm wondering now that we're in the you know, 2011, almost 2012, is there historical in the last century, in the 1900s? Yes. Um, and where does that stop? I, yeah. Various publishers decide uh, what they are going to call historical and, and um, you know, consider, consider to be historical versus um, a, a more contemporary era. Uh Currently, many publishers will will make the cutoff in the 1920s. Some possibly even later. I think that the the era that's difficult to sell as a historical goes from the 1950s on on through to the uh, 1980s. Those those are even though we get lots of readers around who weren't yet born in 1980, um, but the publishers don't consider that to be marketable at this point. Now, this is the publishers that I am hearing about on the American Christian Fiction email loops. Uh, I'm not sure what the secular world is considering, but that is what I am hearing about. So I would say that you're kind of in a no-man's land from oh, possibly from the 1930s uh-huh. and later. Okay. I just kind of wondered where that stopped, being that we're already into the, you know, century past. So now you had mentioned research and it's obviously you do a lot of research. So I'm wondering for historical romances like you write, what all entails in your research? Well, there's so many ways to go about doing research, but well I'll tell you what my favorite way was. The one that I enjoyed the most is I would buy the newspapers on microfilm, I would because I, I have a microfilm reader, so I'd actually buy the reel of newspaper on microfilm that I needed for my particular project, and I would stick that in, and then I'd put my computer next to it, or I'd put it next to the computer, and then I would type up the things that were interesting, and actually I could create the whole plot. Just took it right, took it right out of the newspaper and put my characters in it. It, it really was a great way to understand the what was going on in terms of the spirit of the times, the lo- the, what was happening in that particular location with businesses, if the period was late enough, uh, the social activities were described, there would be humor in the newspaper. Um, you just could get a really a, a great overall feel for what was going on at the time. And, of course, it was written in the language of the day, so you were getting a good group on what the vocabulary was that was in vogue at the time. Uh, So that was my favorite. I mean, there were many many other uh, ways that I I could run some of those by too uh, quickly. Um, Research methods that I enjoyed were going to museums, both the traditional and the open air. I would engage the docents and the interpreters in conversation about what they were interpreting. I would pick their brains, get more information than what they were sharing with with the general public visitor. Um, historical societies uh, they they have 
great archives and history that they will share. Gene- I haven't particularly or personally used genealogical groups, but they're, that they, I've been told, are the same. Uh, I have not done any geological research, so, so that's not part of what I've done, but I know that they are helpful. And um, getting books through libraries from the interloan where they can go across the country, a super loan type of deal, which is what I used to use a lot before we had this great huge database on the Internet. Um, these were ways that I had to use because at the time that I did much of, much of my research, the Internet was not a great database. Now it is. Now I'm finding out lots and lots of things that I don't have to bother going to these other situations to get. Uh, another possibility for getting really good information is journals and diaries, if, if you can come across those for your era, for your setting. Wow. Um there's actually a lot of outlets for you to do the research in, obviously. Donna, I'm, uh, you had mentioned earlier something about Christian-based. So are your historical romances all Christian-based? Not all, but those that I would say are more of a secular nature embody the Christian worldview. Uh, they simply don't have as much characters praying or not in you know, not making the faith as an obvious part of the story. Um, the, in my Great Lakes Romances series, the first—I want to say—the first four titles, I particularly wanted to be able to draw in the secular readers as well as the Christian readers, and for that purpose, I didn't emphasize the prayer practices or church going that the characters might have been involved in in later books. I just made them abide by the moral standards that I wrote to for the religious publishers when I was writing for them. And uh, so now my my entire series is a combination of those first four secular, but then the rest of them, I actually had requests from my readers saying, we miss the characters playing and knowing for sure that they're Christians and all that. So it's all fine, fine. You know. Uh-huh. So then, then I went ahead and just said, okay, well, we'll just portray these people as straight-out Christians. That's what they are, uh, and you know, except for the villains who might have not been. But um, the main characters were always abiding by that Christian standard of uh, moral behavior. So, and that would be praying, the praying practices, and church going. Is there anything else that would give the basis of the book being a, a Christian-based? Some of them are much more evangelical than mine. Uh-huh. Uh, I I was not one to worry about, uh, am I going to convert the reader and do I have an obligatory um, salvation message in the story? I never worried about that. Some Christian romance publishers have certain standards. They require that certain messages be included. I never did that. I mean, I, I didn't have to because I was making my own rules. I was my own... I was my own editorial guide. So I never worried about that. I just wanted to make it so that I had no language that was going to offend Christians. Um, I had to be very careful in in choices that uh, I made if if a a character was upset in the story and uh, was going to tend toward uh, some kind of a cuss word that was never a cuss word. So I I just wouldn't do that because that would be completely offensive to readers and they wouldn't uh, be interested in reading my books. So... That's the kind of uh, situation that I was careful about. Um, Donna, uh, I'm curious with all the with all the historical research that you do, um, and then you have to you have to translate that into the book for the reader. Um, 
how how much detail is appropriate or how much detail is too much detail when you're writing historical fiction? You know, that's a, a, a completely subjective point of view, I suppose. Uh, but you surely don't want to uh, go layer upon layer of, of descriptive uh, narrative that would lose your reader because now uh, they're bogged down in the details of some kind of a setting description or uh, some some other whatever. You 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 have to have to give that out in bits and pieces. You have to know what it is. You have to know a hundred times as you as you well know because you've written historical fiction. As you well know, you have to know a hundred times more than what'll ever make it into that book because you have to know within yourself. You have to embody. That historical times, the, the the spirit of the times, the spirit of the customs, and these have to be second nature in your mind as you're writing the story, so that that the, the turn of phrase that your character uses brings about that historical spirit. Descriptions that you give of of any article of clothing, uh, it's it's great to give to describe the clothing, but you certainly want to do it in a way that isn't going to over do overkill and the, and the readers can say, well, I really didn't need to know that. Uh, let's get back to the story. So you, you just have to you have to give it out carefully. You have to give it out in little bits and pieces and uh, let these details provide the authenticity, the feel of authenticity for your reader. And I, I was just wondering... Um I know that you have reprinted some books that are about a century old or more, and um, I I haven't read them, but I, I know that um, some of them are probably romance novels. I assume. Um, how how do you decide which ones to reprint? Because I'm I'm wondering what makes um, what is the fine line there between what is still readable to a person in 2011 from say a book published in 1880. And uh, and others that you know the romance story just won't be of interest to us anymore. You know that that whole that whole situation was uh, I did that so many years ago. I did that before we had print on demand, before we had Google Books, and before we had this wonderful internet database. And the choices that I made at that time were I I took pieces that were brought before me by others who who pointed them out to me and said, you might be interested in this because it's I've read it and it's quite interesting. And that was how I made those choices. I would read it and think, would the readers who are reading my uh, Victorian romances find this entertaining? And that would be how I made the choice. So, uh, like, I remember doing one that I called Amelia. Uh, and this story took place in the very early 1900s. And it was quite a fast-paced romance. And the whole thing about choosing to reprint is that the pacing has to move. Readers, even at the time when I was doing those reprints back in the 1990s, uh, readers wanted a fast pace, far different from what was normally written back in the Victorian era. So the pacing was a big deal. If it had the right pacing, it might appeal, and the readers might enjoy it. That was That was a big piece of the criteria that I judged it on. Yeah, I, I remember um, I've read about, well, I've read Jane Austen, as I've said, and um, I remember at least one critic talking about how 
nothing much ever happens, but <laughs> there's just enough to make you want to keep turning the page. And and so I'm just kind of wondering, like with your books, um, can you tell us a little bit about like how you how you plot them or organize them to keep the to keep the plot moving and, and the pace moving? Um. Yeah. Well, going back to <laughs> my reading of those microfilm newspapers. Uh, I would take all these various incidents that I could see my characters involved in, and I would create an outline from that, and I would attempt to bring these uh, different incidences, roll them out at a pace that the readers would find kept them engaged in the story, had to turn the page and uh, figure out Okay, how's how's this how's this going to turn out, and what is going to happen to these characters, and uh, how how is this all connected in the end? So um, I basically just uh, t- took what I could find in history. My books all I just went back to the history, and okay, what was happening, what was going on at that time, and try to engage the reader at a pace that would keep them turning the pages. Uh, I've always I've always been very, very um, highly aware of what is this pacing, and uh, and that would be how I would do it. And what I'm hearing, Donna, is even though this is fiction, the circumstances have to really be reality. Uh, the you know the dialogue, the the characters, the era, and this is where your research comes in. It's very important to write in that era that actually that is the way that it really was. Exactly, yes, right. Um, you, 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 I, had a, I had somebody ask me, and this was online in one of the e-loops that I'm with, the Christian Writers Group, and she, she said she had a question. She was going to do a time travel, and her question was something that she writes contemporary, but she was going to do a time travel incident. So she wanted to know, like in a nutshell, what was happening with the um, Underground Railroad at this particular time at this particular place. I, you know, I had to tell her, you know what, you're going to have to, she wanted to know how she could quickly understand it all. I said, you have to go and absorb, mm-hmm. go to museums. You have to absorb it. Mm-hmm. It's not quick. I can't find a fast way to, to give it to anybody. And Well, I can definitely see that. Donna, you... um mentioned that quite often about your readers, and I'm interested in knowing how you established your readers in the first place, and of course, obviously, you've written a lot of books, so you have a lot of followers, but how did you originally establish your readers? Okay, how did I connect with my readers? That was uh, that was a uh, technique that at the time... And, you know, this goes back to the uh, mid to late uh, 1980s before the Internet was a a real factor in how we connect today. So back then, uh, the publishers would publish in the back of the book a reader's survey. And this reader's survey would prompt their readers to give their reaction to the book. Well, when I started out publishing my own series, I made sure I put in reader surveys with incentives for them to send in these reader surveys so I could collect uh, the, the the names and addresses of those people who were really interested in really enjoying the books. So I established a, a basically a mail list, and I still, many of the people that, that I established on the mail, I still have them on that mail, are, they're still on the mail list. 
And now we have, the, of course, the wonderful social networking that we can do and establish the Internet social group and reader groups. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does, and I'm finding it extremely interesting that I don't remember anything like that at the back of the pages, but what a novel idea. <laughs> I, I thought that the Christian publishers were onto something, truthfully. No kidding. Yeah. No kidding. And so where are your books sold Are they mainly? Mainly, I would say mainly at this point, Amazon. I, I, I was with a distributor for quite a few years, and in the basically when the um, independent booksellers began disappearing, et cetera, et cetera, I was no longer doing so well with him, and so I ended that relationship, and now it's more of an online uh, situation where they can go to Amazon, and I am only one of many people who puts my titles up there because so many people have them from the past when they were distributed through the the distributor here regionally and when um and they may have uh, a copies of my books that they bought many years ago and now they put them up for sale as used books and and so I just list mine among there and and you know they can buy from whoever they want and I I don't stress over that it's it's not a, um you know it's not anything I can control all I can do is put it out there so you know the the model has changed and going forward my my publishing model changes too so it's mostly you you'd have to go online to find them do, donna do you have some at um like i know you live near the fayette historical park so do you have some there or other yeah. other places that are are settings for your books i do i have or? them i do yeah i do have them here at fayette and those visitors who come into the park can find them in the gift shop. If they even bother to go in the gift shop, there's a lot of visitors come in, they don't even go in there. But they are there. And, um, you know, so that is one outlet. And the, the rest, I, I don't worry about. Okay, I want, I want to go back to a little bit. You mentioned at one point um, the dialogue, and I'm wondering about how you how you go about writing effective dialogue, because a lot of the times when I read, like I love to read Dickens, but... I read his dialogue, and I think I can't write that in my book because nobody would, nobody would uh, read it or understand it or buy into it. And even I, I was talking to an author a while ago who was telling me how she had readers complain about how she didn't use any contractions in her dialogue, and so the characters. Um, they just didn't sound realistic because instead of can't, they would say I cannot. So, um, mm-hmm. how? What's the fine line there with writing dialogue? Well, you you just you just defined, and I have it right here in my notes on historical dialogue. You are treading a fine line between being historically accurate and being modern enough for today's readers to understand and enjoy what you're saying. So what you have to do is find vocabulary, euphemisms, proverbs, sayings that were popular during the era that you're writing about. Find a speech marker for your main characters, each of each of your main characters, your hero and your heroine. Something that marks their speech historically. And be careful to avoid anachronisms, words or phrases that were not in use during the era of your story. Uh, Be careful of using idioms that were possibly in use during 
your story's era, but they have they're also popular today, but they have a different meaning. And um uh, I can give an example of that, for instance, if I'm writing a story set in the eighteen nineties, uh, which at that time was referred to as the gay nineties. I would not use that phrase. It has a different meaning today. Uh, so I avoid phrases that have different meanings or have a contemporary sound, even if they were used back then. If they sound contemporary, I don't use them. Okay. So that sounds like a good rule of thumb. But what, what about something like, um, well, like jumping Jehoshaphat? I mean, I've 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 heard that, but uh, I don't think most people are going to know what it refers to today. Would you would you throw that in just for humor because it's kind of uh, a funny phrase? You know, uh, you're also hitting here, Tyler, upon a, a, a point that in writing for a Christian audience, I have to be very careful. I I have books that tell the origins of phrases and the, how these different euphemisms, what they developed from, what was the what was the word or the, or the original meaning that they came from, and that they became a substitution for. And I am very, very careful. And most of the time, what I do is I make up something that no one else has ever said before or since that's unique to the character, that is sounds okay for its period in history, and it does not derive from any reference to God or Jesus or hell because those derivations would offend my readers. So uh, I have to be careful, and I use the phrase origins books to find out what might be uh, acceptable. One of the one of the ones that I did use, though, in one of my earlier stories, I, I wouldn't use it today because it just might 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 get somebody off in the wrong place. But one of them I did use that I had the heroine say was "Oh perdition." Well, today's word is hell. So I did use that. And the editor I was using for that, she was an editor for Thomas Nelson and Zondervan and, you know, the biggest Christian publishers around. And she came back to me and said, that was the marker that defined your heroine in that story. So she was fine with it. So I figured, okay, it's okay. You know, but you have to be careful. Okay, yeah, and, and even jumping Jehoshaphat, I mean, I suppose it would offend people if it's a, because it's a biblical reference. It would have been a swear word back in those days. Uh, yeah, and I honestly, I don't know, um, but but that that is a biblical character name, so uh, you know it, it it would be one I would not do. But I think it's fine for secular people because it's not a particularly offensive phrase. But okay. I just okay. wouldn't do it because I I've been more cautious than that. Okay. Well, we're we're almost out of time, so let me ask you, um, just kind of to wrap up, um, what what about writing historical romance? Like, what what would you say is the one thing that you most enjoy about it? Probably, uh, what I most enjoy is when this happens. Uh, this happens every now and then. Is when I have developed my character outlines in preparation to doing the story. And then I start the story, and these characters just jump into life on the page, and or on the screen, I should say. And all of a sudden, wow, there they are, and they're telling, 
they're 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 coming out words are coming out of their mouths that I didn't expect or I didn't perceive of. All of a sudden they're just there. If that happens it's it's like that divine inspiration has come to life on, on your screen. Yeah, I know for me it, it kind of feels like I'm I'm wondering like maybe these are real people, maybe I'm like channeling real history or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's great. Oh, gee, Donna, thanks. You've been a real inspiration, I'm sure, to many of our listeners that are either writing historical romances or want to delve into that, and I really do appreciate you coming on and talking with us. And uh, before we sign off, I'd like you to give our listeners your website address. It's greatlakesromances.com. Greatlakesromances.com. Yes. Great. Thank you so much, Donna. Irene, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. It's been a wonderful time here talking with you, too. Thank you, Donna. You've been listening to another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. We'll be back next time when our topic will be writing regional mystery books with special guest Nancy Barr. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We would love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press. For Superior Book Promotions, this is Tyler Tischler in Marquette, Michigan. And for Reader Views, this is Irene Watson in Austin, Texas, wishing you good evening.